From 11FS, I'm Sam Mall, and this is Connection Interrupted. Connection Interrupted is a weekly show focusing on individuals across all walks of life whose plans and journeys were interrupted, disconnected, or rerouted. These are their stories told in their words of the obstacles they faced, the challenges they overcame, and the role technology played both as an instigator and as an instrument for positive growth and change in their lives. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. once stated, Life's most persistent and urgent question is this, What are you doing for others? This is exactly why I admire my friend John Hope Bryant so much. He has dedicated his life to helping others, to working with and educating the underbanked and underserved on economics and improving their financial lives. His latest book, The Memo, is a culmination of his efforts. Simply put, John is one of the hardest working individuals I've ever met. This is his story. When you said when you write, so how many books now? This is the fourth book, fourth but, book. but I mean, I've written you know hundreds of articles, and, right. yeah, but the fourth book. How, and how do you write? Do you actually sit at a laptop and do it? Or are you a handwriter? Plain, uh, an iPad. Yeah. I did the first one, two with an iPad mini with my thumbs oh, on the beach. Lord. Seriously. What, what, which beach? Maui and uh, Walea. I, I write it in typically five weeks, three weeks in August and two weeks in December yeah. and knock it out on the beach five hours a day. I'm amazed that you can write that many books. But, you know, I've found that with a couple of folks that write now. I don't know how they find the time to do it or the or the focus. Is that a learned art or just something that you're – are you comfortable with the, with the writing on top of running organizations, on top of speaking, on top of racing cars, on top of everything else you do? When you're comfortable with yourself, you're just comfortable. And it's not a focus about writing. It's just focus. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good line. I like that. So it's just discipline yeah. so for in, that. in every part of your life. I have a mind map that controls my whole life. That's interesting. Not my business life. Or it's my yeah. whole life. Yeah. Because it's all because, one. It's because I'm a brand. I'm, I'm a corporation. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm God's child. I'm a spiritual base. I'm all that. But I'm also a brand and I'm a, and I'm a revenue generating, energy expending entity. So what am I putting into my mouth? What am I putting into my soul? What am I, what, you know, what am I putting in my head? What am I, how am I managing all that? And then how are you executing on that with focus? One of the things I really appreciate about you, the more research I do, is the fact that you're a student of history. You appreciate history and understanding the importance of the underlying story. So I'm going to tee you up because obviously I've watched some of the interviews with you for your new book that's coming out. But can you talk a little bit about the importance of January to April, 1865. Yeah. Three most uh, radical months of public policy in America's history by arguably the most radical president and free thinker and this positive disruptor in America's history, Abraham Lincoln. Now, President Lincoln doesn't get credit for everything I'm about to say, but when you're president, you either get plastered with the failure and the damage or you get credited with the success. So I'm going to give him credit for it. There were other movers in his universe who actually did a lot of what I'm about to say, but it was done with his blessing. So January 1865, after the Civil War, generally speaking, had ended. Now, what I mean by that was there was no TV back there. There was no Facebook, no Snapchat, no technology, no tech, as we would call it. The tech back then was, hey, dude, you want to come to dinner? It was it was voice. It was feet. It was um, hand gestures. It was uh, parchment paper. Uh, write a note with liquid ink, roll it up, put it in a, a, a tube, seal the tube with hot wax and have your assistant ride by horse to your neighbor to deliver. That was called the mail service. We call that today U.S. Postal Service, but that was the mail back there. So the, it's extraordinary because the war was over in some places and not over in others because they hadn't got the, the, the memo that the war was over. Uh, slaves that didn't hear from about the slavery that had ended in some places for a decade. In Atlanta, where we're sitting right now, had been burned to the ground, the march to the sea. Uh, it was an effort by the Union Army to break the back, to break the confidence of the Confederate Army, uh, not to break the legitimate military strength. This is how important spirit and, and energy is, not to break the supply lines, not to dismantle their armaments. No, to break their spirit. 
this is really important to break their confidence. And this relates back to uh, the original sin of America, which is slavery, and what the intention was there. I'll come back to that in a minute, because it's not what people think. It was all economic, and there was a way in which they had to go about it in order to achieve their aims. So the Civil War ravaged place like Atlanta, so they couldn't meet in Atlanta. So Secretary of War Stanton and General Sherman agreed to meet 20 former slaves who were ministers in Savannah, Georgia which then and now looks the same. And they met uh, at this nondescript place and asked, what do you want? Say, I want a welfare program. No. A giveaway. No. An apology. Well, that was deserved, but no. A government subsidized program. No. They said, we want land. We want to do for ourselves. And land here. Land I think is, that's an important point. Yes, yes, they didn't want to be shipped back to Africa. They didn't want to be sent to Haiti. Um, that they fought for the Union cause. They built this country for free. And they wanted uh, their opportunity to participate in the free enterprise and the value proposition that really they were used as chattel property to create. They wanted land. And Field Action 15, which was a War Powers Act, uh, because we were still in the time of war, uh, it was a War Powers Act that allowed Secretary of War Stanton to issue edicts. We call them at the presidential level executive orders. Field Action 15 set aside 400,000 acres from North Carolina down the coast, 30 miles in from the coastline, all the way to what we now call Miami, Florida. That land was set aside for former slaves to occupy post-war. Now, your listeners might say, dang, that's super cool, man, beachfront property. But back in 1865, where you made your money off the land, it was just about the worst thing you could give somebody. I lived in Charleston. So that's the low country. It's yeah. swamp. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. through Savannah all the way down through Georgia. It's beautiful and yes, useless <laughs> for the agricultural purposes. <laughs> exactly. So you plant your seeds in the beach and wake up tomorrow, assuming that you can get your seeds to actually, you know, soil up in that environment. You plant, you come back tomorrow or next month and your crop is in Jamaica. <laughs> okay. But we didn't complain about it. We got busy. Again, no technology as we know it, no cell phones, no Morse code, nothing. And somehow a thousand former slaves got the memo. The land was available, occupied the land, worked it with such industriousness that the Secretary of War and General Sherman said, my God, look at this industriousness. Give them a mule. That's like saying today, give a farmer a tractor. It was an investment, not a handout. That was February of 1865. March of 1865, March 3rd, President Abraham Lincoln sat down at his desk and signed the law of the Freedmen's Bureau Act. The Freedmen's Bureau Act, amongst other things, created hospitals and educational institutions, um, land-grant colleges, and so on and so forth. But it also created the Freedmen's Bank. And the Freedmen's Bank's mission was, quote, to teach freed slaves about money, end quote. Now, small antidote, never said this to any interviewer before. The Freedmen's Bank actually was created by a black man in New York, a pastor, who realized that free enterprise and uh, ownership and opportunity was really how you set people free. And so he uh, and some other black and white progressives in New York and then Philadelphia created this bank. Uh, and in order to give it some legitimacy, they wanted to federally align itself. So that's when President Abraham Lincoln took the mantle up. I've never said this to anybody before because people like interest. They like stories that are simple and clean. So the simple and clean version is, the truth, Lincoln signed in the law March 3rd. The backstory is, though, it was actually created by a black man uh, years before that who got the memo well, long before anybody else did. So Lincoln creates this bank, and then on the same day, he writes, In God We Trust on U.S. Currency. And I don't know this to be a, a fact, but my sense is that he wanted to differentiate government endorsements from bad capitalism. And never to have something as immoral as slavery ever be government-backed again. Yeah, it's interesting, by the way, c coming out of um, when we're doing this, you know, we've, we've had Charlottesville. We've had a couple of incidents 
And, and we, we've talked about, as a nation, the Civil War, right, the impact of it. And we get back to this argument about states' rights and, and everything else. And I remember seeing on Twitter somebody posted, here's the currency of Virginia. Here's the currency of the Confederacy. Notice it's slaves on there. To deny that's a, the economic component of this and the evil of it, you can't. It's just you're trying to rewrite history. So imagine being in my position where you've got folks pushing back on something as silly as Confederate monuments and so on and so forth, rewriting history to rationalize to tell rational lies. And then you've got a, a traditional black constituency who never got the memo on money and who thinks that all this is actually about racism and about principally about you not liking me and somehow this is a malicious act for you to set me back and hold me down. And and you find me in the middle of all this with really no good deeds shall go unpunished and not getting love really from either place. And you, right. re, you realize very quickly why nobody would actually take on this impossible <laughs> task. And, and I did the Roland Martin show and I put the story in the book because I think it's I wanted people to know that I was not ashamed of what happened. I also wanted them to know what it took to have progress. I also wanted to give them courage through me to go do things that may not be popular. I'd rather you respect me and learn to like me than like me and never respect me. And if you don't know what you're willing to die for, you aren't fit to live. That's Dr. King, 68. And in the story, that in the book, the memo, I talk about how Roland Martin had me on his show and I talked about slavery. And I, just, and I described it as principally and primarily an economic effort by Europeans and Southern farmers because the soil in Britain and other parts of Europe was not fitting for cotton and other uh, crops. The Southern soil was perfect in America. And so you had these agricultural geniuses in Africa, <laughs> not dumb people, not stupid people. No, these were of that age geniuses because they were geniuses of the land. And they had a work ethic that was unparalleled. And they were used to working in hot, uncomfortable environments for 10 hours straight. So Europeans and others, and by the way, it wasn't just Europeans. It was also Indians. It was also Arabs. And it was also blacks <laughs> uh, who engaged in the slave trade because, it, again, it was economic. And they put these folks in a, on a boat and they... They took them uh, uh, to America and, uh, and other places, by the way. But America was the only place that made it into a crop. And we actually took 4 million slaves and turned it into 40 million. While other people, other countries were smart enough to say, oh, you know, we should probably back off this. You know, it's probably not the best idea. I might get struck by lightning for, or my God may not like me very much. But this was making so much money in America. The richest state in America was Mississippi <laughs> in eighteen. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. That, that tells you. Oh, okay, we'll just. And it wasn't the whole state; it was just the trading ports. So uh, the Mississippi Delta along yeah. the river. It was. It yeah. was. Uh, it was Gulfport, Mississippi, and all those ports where the slave trade, where the slaves were docked and traded in the port cities. That was the. That was a Silicon Valley economically, of the uh, early eighteen hundreds and late seventeen hundreds. So the poorest state in America that rejects diversity was the richest state in America yeah. that embraced bad capitalism. And to talk about financial illiteracy, by the way, uh, those in Mississippi, and I love Mississippi, my mother's from Mississippi, it's a great state, great people in it, but those in Mississippi with about the lowest credit score state in this country, 612, those in Mississippi who say we hate the government don't realize that a third of every dollar in Mississippi is a government dollar. Back to the story. So... Here we have a people who've been brought here as property. Now, you have 100 slaves against 10 overseers. These guys are big. They're very strong. You've got to break their spirit. So you hold down one while you abuse his wife in front of him. Message. You can't do anything about it. You take the kids and you separate them. You, re you refuse to let them use the language. But, and while all this is abusive and disgusting and immoral and horrible, that's not my point. <laughs> my point is this was a way to break their spirits. So you basically created mechanical human property. In generational, because this is over centuries. This is 400 this is, this years, This is over basically. 400 years. Yeah. And so what I say today, if you want to look at, 
if you want to understand poverty today and you want to understand why the African Americans are a big part of the invisible class, along with my poor white brothers in rural America, and along with, uh, with probably 80% of Americans are living from paycheck to paycheck, too much month at the end of their money. But if you want to understand black poverty, which is different from every other poverty, because when mainstream America has a headache, black folks have pneumonia, understand that for the 350 years of slavery and being told you ain't shit, excuse my bluntness on podcast, your podcast. Yeah, you're good being told you aren't anything, a hundred years of Jim Crow following that, which is legalized slavery, they could pick you up at 6 p.m. because you broke a curfew because you're walking through the wrong city and then and then put you into a prison to work it off that you were walking through the wrong city, which is basically just commercial slavery. And that ended, ended in 1970, not 1870. And so for 400 plus years, you've been told you ain't nothing. There's a good chance you believe it. And on top of that, you were denied at a basic education. And when you got an education, it was 40 years behind your white counterparts because they gave you your white counterparts 10-year-old books, which were pretty much out of date by the time that you got them. Now, what's my point? If you never got the memo on money and free enterprise and capitalism, if the bank failed in 1865 that he, Abraham Lincoln created because he was assassinated the month after he created the bank, and if Frederick Douglass and Du Bois said the failure of that bank did more to set free slaves in America back than 10 more years of slavery— in 1874. And if you didn't get the memo on money or free enterprise until Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., not an economist, not a businessman, but a pastor, stood up in Memphis, Tennessee in 1968, launched the Poor People's Campaign, which was about poor whites, because there are more poor whites today and then than anybody else, poor blacks, Latinos, Asians, Indians, and others. And he said, you cannot legislate goodness, cannot pass a law to force someone to respect you. The only way to social justice in a capitalist country is economics and ownership. I was king in 1968, and he'd been mummering things like this, like the March for Jobs and Freedom was a march for jobs and freedom. And he said, I'm here, to, I'm here in, a, in Washington, D.C. to present a check marked non-sufficient or insufficient funds. This was an economic message as well as a moral message. And he was killed on the balcony in March, April 4th, 1968. So it's not like we got the memo on free enterprise and capitalism and screwed it up. We never got the memo. So now you got a group of people who, for 400, almost 500 years, going back to Jamestown, Virginia, 1619, when the first 20 slaves and indentured servants came into this country, 16 slaves, four indentured servants, the four were white, their uh, penalty off, the, the slaves were told this was for life, and you have been told you ain't nothing for all these years, there's a pretty good chance that you're, that 80% of black America is clinically undiagnosed depressed. And that's poverty. That's because half of all wealth is confidence and belief and self-esteem in yourself. Half of all poverty beyond sustenance, meaning a roof over your head, food under your table, all that kind of stuff. The real aspirational piece of life that goes from not surviving but thriving, half of all success and wealth is confidence and self-esteem. And so if you fail that matriculation exam, if you don't believe in yourself, you're already toast. Now you never got the, the, the memo on free enterprise and capitalism, and you're really screwed. So now you have a 500 credit score neighborhood in urban America that has a check cashier next to a payday loan lender, next to a rent-to-own store, next to a title lender, next to a liquor store, and you don't even realize that you're living in modern slavery. To quote Andrew Young, to live in a system of free enterprise and not to understand the rules of free enterprise must be the very definition of slavery. So when you're going back to Savannah, Georgia, and you're looking at what happened in January with the land and February with the mule and March with the bank, and then April, Abraham Lincoln's assassinated, you actually realize that we had a chance to actually revolutionize America after the American Revolution. It was the most th remarkable three months of public policy you could ever imagine. And poof, it just all went away. I like what you said in, a, in another interview. And, and you, you, again, you're talking about the, the after effects of that. You said, we put together a political party or political power before we put together an economic power. Well, sort of. What I said was, I'm glad you caught that. It's actually probably one of the most important things I've ever said. I actually just started saying it the last week. I, people didn't know people were, were ready for it, but I'm calling what I'm doing now blunt force love. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just giving it to you whether you can handle it or not. That's all right. Uh, because the world's good. screwed up and we have people who are idiots running, yeah. trying, you know, yeah. we're trying to screw us we're up. We're going to get more. there. Don't worry. So, 
So, I'm sorry, not idiots, they're just acting like idiots. Actually, some of them are idiots. But what I'm saying is that what we should have in the world is an economy, a sophisticated economy that sits within our culture. But what we have in the world, dating back to Jesus, is a culture that we've decided sits inside of our economy. And so what I say in this book is, yes, you're being abused. (laughs) Yes, racism is real. Yes, you're being pimped. Yes, this shit's horrible. And? (laughs) I mean, and now what? What are you going to do about it? So we have all of our systems are around a moral world. Civil rights leaders, social justice leaders, anti-discrimination. But I can't get in your heart. I can't solve the pain and the the sense of lack of your own self-esteem in your soul that came from the way you were raised. I can't get, I can't change you. But what I can do is to create my own justice department inside of me that makes me more resilient when I run into you. And if I can love you in spite of and not because of, then I'm free and you really have a chance. You have a, a great quote. I spent the day listening to John. He's been in my ear all day. I feel sorry for you. Now, and, 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 you know, this whole podcast is about using technology to, to better lives. And, and you do. You, uh, the videos you put out, you, you take advantage of them. Yeah. My, yeah. Little, my little TV, TV network in my pocket right yeah. here. Yeah. And, and you take advantage of it. And it doesn't have to be the, the most beautifully produced. Um, it's just I, what I like most about you are just your chats. When, when you get inspired, you literally whip out the phone. He, he does a tour. John does a tour in Baltimore. Um, a lot with Frederick Douglass, who, who actually I learned a lot about just today. I mean, I, I've always admired Frederick Douglass. I didn't realize that he invested the equivalent of uh, how many million? Himself well, he's worth five and a half million dollars. Yeah, just unbelievable. And he invested $20 million of his own money, the equivalent of that $10,000 at that point in the Freedman's Bank. In the Freedman's Bank. Bank, yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to have to go back and read more when now. When he died, he's worth five Douglas. and a half million dollars conservatively, just in, just in real property. Well, here's, here's the quote, though, that you gave. So we'll stir up a little bit of controversy, but I don't think it is. And and for our listeners, John has worked with and has been advisor for President Clinton, first President Bush, second President Bush, President Obama. So please understand this whole statement. You said in one of these videos, a black Bill Gates would have a bigger impact on our culture than President Obama had by being elected. Can you expand a little bit on what you meant by that? And by the way, I agree. I thought it was a fantastic point. So I think President Obama's brilliant. I think he's super dignified. There was never a uh, moral crisis, a scandal. It's unbelievable in his whole eight years. It's, I mean, I don't know a presidency doesn't have a scandal of some sort. Yeah. He's to be commended for that. Dignity, rich, great role model. Wasn't all that crazy about free enterprise and capitalism. Um and you've talked about this. You know, it's okay to admire somebody and to say, maybe yeah. I would have focused on jobs and not the health care. Yeah. He spent the still. first two years focusing on health care. It was personal to him. I understand it. My thing is, let me give you a, ju- a good job and I'll buy my own thing on health care versus give me health care. Let me figure out how to get a job. But it's just a way in which you approach solving problems. So uh, my point was that the, the time to have a black president, if you wanted to really sort of send a message would have been in the 20th century. Because the 20th century in America and around the world was really about how do you uh, remove social injustice in, that's been endorsed by government. A la South Africa, where I'll be uh, tonight or tomorrow. A la uh, India. A la many parts of Europe. A la uh, Europe where Jews could not own land, so they created portable wealth, financial services. <laughs> um a la the southern states. So you had these leaders pop up, and we want to call Dr. King a black leader. No, 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 no. Dr. King wasn't a black leader. He was an American revolutionary. He's probably the fourth American revolution, and he helped to save us from ourselves. He said, I'm here to redeem the soul of America from the triple evils of war, racism, and poverty. He didn't say I'm here to save black people, okay? So, so but, but, but if you cannot say and not prove, America cannot show that we have freed black people in the southern states from our own ignorance, then how do you serve as a beacon for the rest of the world for freedom? And how do you attract immigrants from all around the world to believe that they can come here and be free? So what what Dr. King and Andrew Young and others did in the southern states really has provided, I think, trillions of dollars of economic opportunity for white people and others who never even touched any of these issues in the northern states because their descendants came here believing this place was free. 
And so it was a gateway experience. The civil rights movement was a gateway experience for everybody. So the time to be an elected official and to get the right to vote to the formerly uh, oppressed so they could then vote idiots out of office and change laws was the 20th century. In the 21st century, we shifted to money as the, the central power in the world. And immediately you saw city governments go broke. Detroit was the richest city in the world 65 years ago. Think about that. Richer than Paris, richer than London, richer than Manhattan, which generates $71 trillion a year in economic activity because of Wall Street. Three times the federal budget of the United States of America of $21 trillion in Manhattan. Detroit was richer than everybody. And we just gave it away because we never upgraded our software. And so you have these governments that did not reimagine who they were. And they have gone broke. And the federal government has had to do things like um, issue special, uh, you know, I want to call them city bonds, but they were called, uh, you know, in the Great Recession, they were you know, part of uh, two stimulus packages that was supposed to stimulate the economy. In reality, they were just plugging holes in state and city governments who couldn't print money, but the federal government could. So President Obama, like Dr. King, gave his life of service, and Dr. King gave his life literally to get us to zero. This is a very important point. Right. So Dr. King gave his life not to create homeowners, entrepreneurs, small business owners, educated population, move people forward. He gave his life to take down the whites only sign. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln gave his life. He was cool until he said black folks should have the right to vote, and Booth said you'll be dead in 30 days. He gave his life to get us to back to zero. Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, dedicated his life to try to give some basic rights, health care and the like, to the masses of people. I commend that. To try to get cities out of a death spiral. I commend that. But you cannot be an expert just on what you're against. You've got to figure out what you're for. You cannot just spend your life focusing on surviving. You've got to shift to thriving. But we had no portfolio for thriving, which is why I think we've ended up in this interesting political environment right now where you have capitalism and fear. You talk about this a lot because I, I hear you talk about, uh, and I like how you put it, um, the average credit score in the U.S. is 700. And I don't want to focus too much on credit scores, but you talk about that credit score of 620 and below. Within the white population, it's roughly... So the average population, so the credit score of 620 below for African-Americans is 44%. So give or take, half of all African-Americans in America cannot access the credit markets. You cannot become a homeowner. You cannot start a small business. And not, I mean, without getting pimpified capital of 25% interest that will just explode any business that you've got. So unless you're, now this is very interesting. I hadn't thought about this until this moment. This is deep. Unless you're running a criminal enterprise, that has returns on investment in the short term of probably three, three, you know, triple digits. You, you, you know, you don't get to enjoy it because you're dead in 10 years. But that criminal enterprise is probably the only thing that would allow you to finance an 18 percent car note and all the rest of the disgustingly abusive financial services in those communities. I had not thought about that until this very second. It literally prohibits legitimate business. So one of the interviews I did before this is with a, a young man. Well, he's not young. He's almost my age now. Uh, named Divine. He's a rapper. He is the co-founder, one of the founders of Black Tech. He's, he's rejuvenated his life, but he spent the early portion of his life as a crack and cocaine dealer. Did federal time. And it was amazing when I talked to him because we, we did talk about those early days. And the business acumen that he had or still has. But again, what you're talking about from the, from, from dealing the Coke and the crack and everything else. And, and by the way, I need to introduce you to divine. It's a fantastic story, but that does get back to your example with Bill Gates. And you know what, when you said this, you know, to have a black Bill Gates and to have that, that you could look at, I started racking my brain to say, okay, I'm going to challenge John on this because I can name. And I went, uh Oh, Tristan Walker, but he's not a billionaire. Damn it. I couldn't think and then, Am I just wrong? I and then, and then folks will say Oprah Winfrey, who's who is incredible, but she's got a few hundred employees. I'm looking at, I'm looking for tens of thousands. She's worth sub ten billion. Bill Gates is worth last time I checked almost sixty billion. Yeah, at scale, we're talking so, more. So, so Bill Gates yeah. would shoot himself if he had the net worth of Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. 
and that and Oprah's the best we got. And then you have Jay Jay Z, if you believe if you want to believe he's a billionaire, that's a little bit of hype, but he's worth a lot of money. Him and Beyonce, but that's that's an entertainer. Then you have uh, Magic Johnson, who's worth a, worth several hundred million dollars, but he's a sports figure. Then you've got Reginald Lewis, who created a billion dollar enterprise with McCall Pattern Company, but he's dead. <laughs> and then, yeah, I, I mean, couldn't. I couldn't think. I I was on the plane, and I had my notebook out, and I said, I'm going to challenge John on this. And you're, I couldn't, I could not list anyone. Out of all the black banks in America, and they're not ten billion dollars. Every black bank together, and they're not ten billion dollars. And you cannot be a top one hundred bank in America for less than twenty five billion dollars. Wow. But all of the black banks, which is the source of mainstream capital, together are less than ten billion dollars, and they're dying. So, so going back to this credit score piece. So you have 44% of Americans who have a 620 or below. I've already talked about So And that affects your relationships, your self-esteem, your access to capital, your confidence, your belief system. You hang around nine broke people, you'll be the 10th. I mean, it affects everything, your hope, your trust in the system. And you start thinking that what you're seeing around you is normal. No, it's pimp. It's, it's you're being pimped and brought, you're being robbed in broad daylight, but you think it's normal. Now, 15% of white America has a credit score sub 620. That's Trump's base. 15% is about 25. These numbers are just stunning. It's 25 to 30 million Caucasian brothers and sisters. His core base, that no matter what he says, they say, I'm with you. Yeah, Low education, uh, high levels of depression, high levels of hopelessness, dying faster than anybody else in America. Literal fact, high school educated white men dying faster than anybody else who have economics that have cratered because the Industrial Revolution walked away from them 60 years ago and nobody came to save them, and they needed their white Al Sharpton. No disrespect to my friend no, Al Sharpton. I, I, oh, that was a good line, by the way. I, it was funny when Devine and I were talking, because, again, I grew up in Detroit and at, at times really struggled. And Devine and I were laughing because we, were, we, we started talking about ghetto cheese, and we both had you know welfare cheese, and we both had some funny stories about that block of cheese growing up. But he made a funny line because he, you know, I was asking him, did he deal? Because he grew up in Newport, Rhode Island. I said, did you deal to the tourists? And he goes, no, they weren't going to take anything from me. I was dealing in the ghetto. And he goes, it was funny in the ghetto because at a point, color just ceased to exist. When you're poor, you're poor. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, and and this is something I find very interesting in some of your other books. And and I'm sure the memo talks about this. You use the term inner capital. Oh, that is the memo. I, that's that's, that's, I the, love that's, that that's uh, rule two. Okay. What do you mean by inner capital? We're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. And if you have inner capital, it almost doesn't matter how much money you're dealing with. You'll create value. If you don't have inner capital, all the money in the world won't save you. There's a difference between being rich and being wealthy. There's a difference between writing a check and cashing one. There's a difference between being broke and being poor. Being broke is economic. Being poor is a disabling frame of mind, a depressed condition of your spirit, and you must vow never to be poor again. So here's how it translates. If I don't like me, I'm not going to like you. If I don't feel good about me, I'm not going to feel good about you. This goes back to self-esteem and confidence. If I don't love me, don't expect me to love you. If I don't respect me, I don't have a clue how to respect you. And here's the big one. Now think about hope now. because goes a dangerous person in the world is a person with no hope. If I don't have a purpose in my life, I'm going to make your life a living hell. That's Ferguson, Missouri. And you can see the the. So it becomes it, it's a self. I mean, it this all this becomes becomes self manifest destiny. Yeah. If you, because if I believe I can, I believe I can't. I'm right. <laughs> so, so here's where I'm curious because you, you are you are a doer. There's just no other way to. You're focused. You're a doer, and you've been one your your entire adult life. And I'm sure when you were a kid, you were. A handful. Grew up in Compton, LA, California, right? South Central LA. Homeless for six months of my life when I was 18. Okay. So. Started yeah. my first business when I was 10. Incredibly. One of those. Just incredibly focused. I love that. Operation Hope. Started in 1992, correct? So this thing's been around. This isn't anything new. You've been doing this. 1992. Yeah. 25 years. This is our 25th anniversary. And, okay. And and we are going to have a ton of links around Operation Hope. And there's a bunch of interviews on it. So I, I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about this because we had before, but I do love Operation Hope. Correct me if I'm wrong. You just opened up another 100 centers? Our 100th Hope Inside location in Baltimore, Maryland. It's the same city, by the way. I hadn't thought about this. I'm going to do a video on this. The 100th location, and we did not plan this. Coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. The 100th location is in the city that, it, that Frederick Douglass lived and, and ran his, his business enterprise, which was, which was rental real estate. 
so we are planning a thousand Hope Insides in honor of the Freedmen's Bank, which is a bank that, that Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln ran together across this country by 2020 to raise credit scores 120 points on average because nothing changes your life more than God or love than moving your credit score 120 points to move these 550 credit score neighborhoods to 720, to move 500 credit score neighborhoods to 620 plus. So we opened that 100 location with Fulton Financial in Baltimore. BB&T and others are in Baltimore. We have banks like SunTrust have committed 200 locations or 12% of their bank branch network. First Tennessee Bank, 10% of their bank branch network. And the day after we announce our 100th location, sort of the Starbucks of financial inclusion, if you will, um, it's high tech and high touch. We also got a commitment from Regions Bank for another 100 locations just by themselves. Uh, and all this was a dream in 2013. This hope inside thing we're talking about was just a dream. And now we have 100 plus locations open and orders for 500 plus locations bordering on 600 from Whole Foods to Hyatt Hotels to Atlanta Police Department, Atlanta Public Schools, the Detroit Medical Center. Um, uh, the Sun- police department. You talked about the the yeah. bankruptcy rate in the Atlanta Police Department. It's double the national average. Oh, that's just so you, have, you make forty eight thousand dollars a year. You have a badge and a gun, and you're stressed out. That can't be good for communities. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> and, and, and it does. It builds communities by doing this. Oh. You know, there's one area I was curious. It builds if stability. Well, I was curious if you've ever had this conversation, or if you're already doing it. So I'm. I have a military background, right? About twelve years. That was my escape. Yeah. So from so you have black people, and you've got white people, and you've got military. So the place, the other place where check cashers, payday loan lenders, rent to own stores, title lenders congregate is outside of a, the mouth of a military base because you have you will lose your security clearance if you do if you default on your financial agreement. So these companies are pimping our military personnel of it all. Looks race. like church in here because I keep raising my hands hey, up. Did you notice that? I've done that. Well, you can tell, right? I mean, I grew up. I had no choice. It was it was work in a factory or barely get out or go in the military. That was my escape clause, right? And it is. The military is full, for the most part, of inner city kids, right? Or rural kids that have literally nothing else. Yeah. And the the financial literacy side, when at least when I was in, in the in the 80s, 90s, yeah. was non-existent, right? You went in and you, you did. You were going to check cashers. Yeah. You're going to pawn shops. And you go outside any military base in this country. Yeah. That's what you see. It's what you described earlier, right? So one of my missions, once I finish with Hope Inside for adults and then the Hope Inside for kids, which is our Hope Business in the Box Academies, we're going to give kids a chance to pitch their business idea for 500 bucks in front of a live audience for two minutes. And when they pitch their business idea, we're going to give them an award of five, up to 500 bucks, uh, open a bank account for them, give them a preloaded bank card with their name on it, give them a role model, a mentor, and, 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 and watch the endorphins kick on the right side of their brain as we create a whole generation of new little Steve Jobs uh, and, and heroes and sheroes who will become builders and change this country. Um, and so we're going to do that in adults, do that in youth programs, have internship programs so we can create relationship capital with young people in places where as office buildings, folks like you and I work, where we can actually build a relationship with these people and then want to hire them because we now know them. After we finish with that, I'm going to double back on public policy, go back to what I did with President Bush in 08, where we made ex- uh, financial literacy the policy of the federal U.S. federal government with him doing an executive order. Unfortunately, I was not smart enough to ask for money at that time or curriculum. I just believed that one would lead to the other. We're going to go back to that, and we're going to suggest very strongly that financial literacy should be the civil rights issue of the 21st century, and that home economics and a financial literacy course should be something that actually is mandated. You should get a Social Security number, a bank account, an electronic debit card accessed digital bank account that you identify through your, your thumbprint or your eyes, it should be a tie. If India can do it, we can do it. it. Should be tied to social security number. Should be an indigenous right, not a privilege as it is now. And that should be funneled through and can include financial literacy, which is required in schools. All right. So I, I'm sitting in John's office. We finally met, which is great because we've known each other for a while. We're finally in the same space. You're a cool guy. So I'm, I'm, I'm loving. I'm in you're Atlanta. My, you're my brother from another mother. <laughs> We're sitting in his office. You're an honorary black man. <laughs> Here we go. This is what I love. So I'm looking at the walls, right? And it's it's. George Bush Sr., George Bush Jr. I think I said Bern Bernanke back there. Michelle Obama has got the best spot, by the way, which I love. And I well, wish to God I, she would have run. If we were not in a, in, a, in a chauvinist world, she'd be president. Exactly. She was um, brilliant. And as my, my 15-year-old daughter would, she actually, when I took a picture of that and sent it to her, she said, tell him I love him. <laughs> I'll, show you the t- I'll show you the text before I leave. So here's the obvious question. We have, in my opinion, a major 
Gap in Leadership. And one of your first books, it's on your desk behind me, is Love Leadership. Yeah. All right, it's one of the very first things you wrote. Yeah. We have a gap in leadership when it comes to politics, when it comes to civic leaders, a community. And there's, there's some bright spots out there. It's not a gap, it's a void. A vo good, much better word. I look, I, I see some leaders out there. I look at Van Jones and say, oh my God, why don't you run for office? Um, um, I look at uh, Senator uh, Kamala Harris, right? And I'm like, oh, thank God you've come along. I look at Seth Moulton up in Massachusetts, um, military vet coming in. But after that, you know, Jason Kander, there's some others, but there's this massive gap. And I keep looking at you and going, oh my God, why aren't you running for office? I, because I'd rather be the black Bill Gates than the black president. To, to your previous point, you, you think you'd have more of an impact? I, I, when I was nine years old, uh, my mother told me she had loved me every day of my life, so I had a sense of, yes, I am. My dad owned his own business for, for 54 years by the time he retired, but he wore a suit three times a week, and I said, that I'm going to be a businessman because my daddy was role modeling, and I had a sense of, yes, I can. I didn't yet know what I could do until a white banker, I say that intentionally because this is not about race, this is about class, came into my classroom required by the federal government through Community Reinvestment Act to come and teach financial literacy in low-income neighborhoods. This is the role of government and free enterprise working together, not subsidy or a handout, but a hand up, teaching me how to fish, not giving me a fish. He came in my classroom, taught me financial literacy, thought he was doing us a favor, realized after the third session he was doing himself a favor because he's now expanding his own value and definition of humanity and realizing the kids he was teaching was no different than his own kids. And by the second session, I raised my hand and I said, excuse me, sir, what do you do for a living and how'd you get rich legally? And he said, young man, I'm a banker and I finance entrepreneurs. I said, sir, I don't know what an entrepreneur is, but if you're financing them, I'm going to be one. And I looked up the dictionary, the word entrepreneur is a French word. I said, that's it. That's what I want to do. But in my neighborhood, we never heard the word entrepreneur. We never heard the word philanthropist. We never knew any small business owners. And I went home and I had a sense of mission now. The endorphins start kicking the right side of my brain about what I can do and who I could be. And no one's up now telling me that I had to be get a job working as a, as a factory worker. No one's just telling me that I had to go from the streets, from the fields to the factories. I, can, I now knew I could go from the streets to the suites. I knew that I didn't have to just go get a job. I can create one, which I also put in the memo. I realized that I didn't just have to go cash checks. I could write checks as an employer. And I could do that at 10 years old if I created something of value as an entrepreneur. So I went home and, and convinced my mother to give me to, 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 well, before that, I went to the liquor store that was selling candy, Mr. Mac, Mac's Liquor Store. And uh, it was at Fraley Avenue and Atlantic Boulevard. And uh, I said, sir, you're selling the wrong kind of candy. And he said, go away, little boy. I've got a college degree. Uh, I said, that's nice, but I've got cavities. I'm telling you, I'm a kid. So he wouldn't hire me or shut me. He wouldn't, he wouldn't give me what I wanted, which was answers. So he hired me to be a box boy. He wanted me to work at the front counter, but I wouldn't take that job. That was the best job he had. I wanted to work in the back because I wanted to confirm my thesis. And as soon as I figured out that his product wasn't selling and he was really making his money on the liquor and he was just selling the candy to sort of soften his business model and that this stuff was not moving and that he identified what his wholesale rate and his retail rate was and where he sourced his product, I quit. Went home, borrowed $40 from my mother, made $300 a week at 10 years old, put the liquor store out of the candy business. And no politician could have done that. The mayor couldn't have done that. The governor couldn't have done that. The city alderman couldn't have done that. Laws couldn't have changed the trajectory of my life or put the liquor store out of business. <laughs> but I put the liquor store out of the candy business and soon the liquor store went out of business because I had a vision for myself. And so today, if I'm walking around and I'm an entrepreneur today because I was an entrepreneur then and I'm a major employer with 40 entities that we created, the last one of which was a $130 million real estate company that's that's the largest minority controlled institutional quality owner of single family rental real estate in the country. But all that came from that 10 year old kid who got the memo and who understood free enterprise. And now I'm able to affect policy and not just live under it because I was able to set myself free and you cannot live in a, in a free, in a free enterprise democracy and not understand the free enterprise part. So when I'm walking down the street today, I'd rather kids say, mommy, that's John O'Brien. He's an entrepreneur. He's a philanthropist. I want to be just like that. And then take all that money they make and go finance some great pol political campaigns. So how does your, your mentor, and I believe he's your mentor, when you say that, how does Andrew Young 
respond because it, he, he was a mayor and he was a congressman and in a business. I mean, he was everything. Yeah, I mean, not a businessman. He, he was in business, but really as chairman of things, really. He doesn't. Does he encourage or has he encouraged you before? He's to told run? me if I ever get involved in politics, he will kick my ass. Oh, <laughs> so I'm dying. So, so what do you see? So and, and keep in mind, you never knew Dr. King's politics. You didn't, you didn't yeah, know whether, true, he, was, you didn't know whether he was a Republican Democrat. You got to talk to everybody. So I, but what do you Black see as the The only people don't talk to everybody. All my, oh, Latino, yeah, my yeah. Latino friends only talk, you know, talk to Republicans and Democrats. My white friends talk to Republican and Democrats. My Asian friends talk to Republican and Democrats. Even my Indian friends on Native American reservations talk to, you know, and they got their rear end whipped, right? Talk to everybody. Black folks are the only people I know who only talk to one party. So I'm like, you know, I didn't say I had to love you. I said I had to talk to you, right? So I just decided that I'm going to be about public policy, not about politics. Well, that's what your book is literally. I'm actually getting the book for my wife to sit down, and the two of us are going to go through and read it. It's literally, the book's for everybody. I'm making my 15-year-old read it, my 15-year-old daughter. Don't you think? I mean, Absolutely. I want people... I want this to be something pe- people pass down from generation to generation yeah. and say, you got to get the memo. You, it, it, find the section of the book that speaks to you. I think the fifth chapter on spiritual wealth is the most important one. But find the, the part that speaks to you. It, it, this is not taught in schools. It's not taught in, in, it, it's not, it's not talked about at the dinner table. It's what you don't know that you don't know that's killing you. But you think you know. There's a, there's, a, there's a memo on building wealth. There's a memo on job creation. There's a memo on entrepreneurship. There's a memo on the Silicon Valley. There's a memo on fin- memo on fintech. Yeah, and if you don't get it, you'll. It doesn't matter how brilliant you are. It's what you don't know. It's a club. It's what you don't know that you don't know. You know, if you think about the podcasters, you all know all know each other in this. Area. You think about the movers and shakers in this space. Everybody knows each other. So why does somebody go to Harvard and spend five times more than a state university? Because you're going to be five times smarter? I don't think so. It's because the class of 2018 is going to hook each other up for the next 40 years. End of subject. Dang it, John, you'd make a very good, <laughs> from a campaign standpoint, you'd crush it. And the reason is you can stay on point and on message, but you can also sense the belief in everything that you're saying. And and passion and belief is so incredibly important and so lacking in so much leadership right now. We see it in corporations. We see it in politics. We see it in the community. What if I told you that it's been average people that's changed the world and not politicians? Like you, see, you think yourself, it's 45 presidents in the United States. We can't remember more than the names of more than five of them. 40. This is a, this, when they were president, they were the, arguably the most powerful person in the entire free world. But we can't name, even historians, this is in your program, probably can't name more than 10. And the average person can't name more than five, right? And so then you don't even talk about your governor of your state. Okay. Don't even talk about the Secretary of Energy or Secretary of Treasury. And by the way, the government has an incredible amount of power, right? Oh, no. They're the CEO. They're the president of their state, right? Uh, don't talk. Let's talk about the mayor of Atlanta, all right? I mean, yeah. We're in Atlanta, right? I mean, most people don't even know that Andrew Young was the mayor of Atlanta. And, and you know, that wasn't that long ago. So how many mayors, you know, Sam Musel, do people even, people have no clue about their own history. So politicians... Don't change the world. They react to it. Ooh. Have you used that line before? No. That was a good one. You need to write that one down. That was very good. <laughs> that was a, uh, hey, we're having church again. Just hey, a man. little bit. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I have failed in my attempt to get John to run for politics. However, I agree 100% on the, the, the point about Bill Gates and the black Bill Gates and the, and the leadership from that standpoint, because I actually, this came across, we talked about femtech, the interviews I did with women in tech, and a good friend of mine, um, Scarlett Skyver, said this. She was at the BBVA. She said, the biggest problem I have is, you know, I'm, I'm a young female executive. I'm going to walk around and see anyone else that looks like me. Mm. And I thought that was a fantastic point, right? Yeah, and by the way, we want people to run for public office, right? I, it's just not me. I think that the, the, the real power has shifted. Governments are broke. And like I said, you know, the federal government's budget is $21 trillion in debt. Uh, Wall Street is $71 trillion. Um, but no one's accessing Wall Street. No one's trying to understand that game. And that game is, run, is running every other game. So, so I just think that the, that the power shifted. <laughs> the joke would be, you know, when cities went broke, they gave it to a black mayor. And when the country went broke, we, went to, we gave it to a black president. And, and you know, and assumed that he'd ride it right into the ditch. Well, he did a pretty good job of leveling off. Uh, the Great Recession. But we didn't go from surviving back to thriving. And 85% of those jobs that were created were retail jobs. So let's not celebrate too much. But we did, he should be given credit, enormous credit for leveling things off and bringing a sense of dignity and, 
and, and comportment uh, back to society. But now we're stuck in fear. And that 15% of people who got a 620 credit score don't want a speech on morality. They want a job. Yeah. Well, the book is called The Memo, Five Rules for Economic Liberation. I love the idea that it's application. It's talking about how we got there, but what you focus on is application. So now what? One of the most important questions to ask. So, John, I'm going to walk around your office, take a million pictures. I appreciate the time. I you're really a great do. man, and what you're doing is really important. You cannot have a movement without the media. Dr. King and every other great leader that you admire, from moral movements to even tech, had were marketing geniuses. I mean, Steve Jobs was an okay engineer and programmer. Wozniak was a brilliant programmer for whoever, which, for, for whom which is a horrible marketer, which is why the, most of the world don't know about him. But he's brilliant. Without Wozniak, there'd have been no Apple. But, but Steve Jobs was such a brilliant marketer and self-absorbed that he is, is now identified as the sole founder of Apple when it's just not true. Now, by the way, his contribution is unparalleled to human development. He's the Edison of our day. But by the way, Edison wasn't the Edison of his day because a guy named Tesla was actually smarter than Edison, but Tesla didn't have the marketing genius or the financial girth that Edison did. Tesla created AC. Edison created DC. What are we using more today? AC. I mean, you go on and on and on and on and on. So great marketer, marketing is really not to be underestimated. And what a reason I love this phone in front of me is that it is a, a mini computer. And we have almost 40 million views in 15 months on my John O'Brien Live page on Facebook. Well, these videos that I've done, you mentioned earlier, 88% uh, of which are being watched through a mobile Device. We now have a TV series that Facebook has asked me to do called Delivering the Memo, which is an episodic series which is delivered on Facebook in front of the 3 billion people who are now on Facebook. It's a closed-loop community, all of which is being done on my mobile phone. You have more mobile phones in Africa than you got people. It goes on and on and on. So can you use tech to change the world? Sure you can. That and great marketing. So I, I think that that Dr. King was brilliant in, in not just his moral suasion, then I'll stop. It was that he never would allow a march to happen after 2 p.m. Why? Because we didn't live in digital media. Oh, good point. He needed that reporter to get the film on the plane to New York City in process for the 5 o'clock news. Boom. We're all in this together. And... I can talk and articulate this vision as much as I want. We need people like you to broadcast it. And that means you're as much of a hero and the women who are doing this as much are sheroes and people and change makers as anybody else. And arguably in this day and environment with what's going on in Washington, D.C., you're the last guard for the dignity of a nation, holding people accountable for what they say and what they do. Well, folks, hold John accountable. Follow him on Facebook. Follow him on Twitter. Watch the videos. He'll call you out. <laughs> I love, that's my favorite part of the video, when you talk back to the people and they're pinging you live. And, you, and you'll actually pivot while you're talking to answer those questions. Folks, follow him. John, as always, it was a pleasure. My pleasure. This show is crafted for you by the folks at 11FS. We're building banks for the future. Find out more at 11FS.com. If we hooked you with this episode, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Every star helps. Today's episode was edited by Michael Bailey and produced by Laura Watkins, Ollie Judge, and myself. I'm Sam Mall, and this has been Connection Interrupted. Thanks for listening.